Good morning. I'm Jill Shaw, and I'm here with Ross Wilson. Ross, I actually have to change the opening here because I'm so annoyed by the summary that we're about to share with our audience. You know, what happened last night at school committee was a total embarrassment. What is ha what is happening? How can nearly all of our 53,000 students be out of school and there is almost no discussion, no deep thinking, no probing or problem solving coming from school committee members? You got the tenor of the public comment, which is pleading, pleading for school committee, committee members to understand their role and do something about the dire state of education in our city of Boston. What What is going on? I guess, Ross, let's start at the top. Right. Well, good morning, Jill. Um, good morning. <laughs> so as a reminder, this is the first school committee meeting uh, since the resignation of the former school committee chair, Michael Lacanto. The school committee, if you remember, canceled their last meeting two weeks ago. Right. Um, um, because I, I believe they may, they were fearful that they would be too tired after the election night or something to that effect. So this is the first meeting in a month. Um, and this is also the first meeting since the Boston Globe published the text exchanges between school committee members that show collusion and a lack of professionalism amongst the members. And this was in the Globe, and we can link to this, was in the Globe yesterday. A very troubling time for the Boston School Committee. Last night, we, we, we had an election uh, from the school committee. So we have a new chair. So Al, Alex Oliver Davila is the new chair of the school committee. And Michael O'Neill is a new vice chair of the school committee. Um, and Jill, you know, trust is obviously still an issue, right? right. We um, do anything to restore trust last night. This is the first meeting I have ever seen that began with a group feeling circle of school committee members, where each school committee member had an opportunity um, to express how they're feeling and their feelings. And this is what we heard. We heard some members apologize for their behavior at the last meeting. And some members said, you know, geez, we should have spoken out when Michael Lacanto made those comments. Mm -hmm. We heard some members use their time to talk about the historic moment that happened at the last school committee meeting with the one year policy change for exam school entrance. We heard other members say that they were distracted at the last meeting, that there are other things going on in their lives that distracted them, that they weren't totally present and that they're highly emotional. All right. Geez, this is, this is um, we spent 45 minutes listening to members talk about themselves. While 77 residents of Boston sat in line waiting for their two minutes of public comment. So Jill, we should be highly concerned. We've said this before <laughs> that we should be highly concerned about what's happening with the leadership of our school district. We should be highly concerned about what's happening with the leadership of our school district and with the leadership of this committee itself. Let's start, Jill, with the summary by playing the superintendent's comments and her summary. What happens week to week is the superintendent summarizes what's going on with schools overall in our district, kind of the state of schools. Let's play the superintendent's summary of how things are going with the district. The four schools that we were able to open up were the McKinley schools at all three campuses, the Carter School and Horace Mann schools, and the Henderson School for a select number of students. On Monday, I joined head of school Cindy Nelson in welcoming back students at the McKinley's, and then yesterday headed over to the Horace Mann to greet students and to thank teachers personally uh, for their work, and uh, did that with head of school Maritza Silberto. 
I look forward to visiting the Hart, the Carter and the Henderson later this week, uh, both of which I visited last week too, while, uh, last month while they were open. I wanna thank our educators and our staff for their incredible work to get our students back for in-person services that are critical to their health and well-being uh, and the services that they deserve and require for their continued uh, development and progression. I also wanna thank President Tang of the Boston's Teacher Union and Mayor Walsh for their leadership this past weekend in forging an agreement um, around some uh, safety measures, some additional safety measures, additional air quality testing, additional medical grade PPE for some of our teachers that had requested it. Um, also for bringing our teachers um, closer to the COVID testing so that it was more convenient for them. Um, and also um, more focus on our teaching and learning around some flexible scheduling for, uh, for our teachers and the staff at those schools. I, I, so this is it? Those are the only pressing things on the superintendent's agenda? Right, so, so Jill, we heard that we have a little over 100 students with high needs back in school. They started on, on Monday. Um, they're in four schools um, and hopefully most of these students will be going to school four days a week. Mm -hmm. um, not, not a mention, Jill, not a mention of the other 53,000 students who are learning virtually. No attendance data. We have no idea how many kids are logging in. No mention of learning loss. No mention of how remote learning is going. Zero. No data. Zero data. No mention of how we're going to get kids back in school or when. Uh, zero. A, a complete failure of leadership from our superintendent in these comments. Um, and we have 77 parents waiting to talk about the concern for their students. And the superintendent seems to be blind to what their concerns may be. Uh, we spent the um, spring, Jill, if you, were, if you recall, uh, when, when remote learning first occurred, every school committee meeting, we heard about attendance data. We heard about how many kids were logging in. We heard metrics. Meals served, et cetera, et cetera, yeah. Meals served, everything. We, now we've gotten to the point in the school committee where apparently there's not a number mentioned. Right. It's really weird. It's such a, like given, given the like trauma of the time and how big this crisis is and how many kids are involved and how many families are involved in this, it's, it's, it's just befuddling. Jill, like, it, know, it, 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 it's, the superintendent and her team are completely out of touch of the reality of families in this school system, period. Now, the superintendent, because she didn't mention any data, had to be prompted by Michael O'Neill, Vice Chair Michael O'Neill, um, with a question about data. Let's play Michael O'Neill's question. And I want to make sure we're focused on our um, 55,000, 53,000, whatever the appropriate number is now, students who are learning remotely. And the challenges that they're facing is they're now coming up, you know, into the holiday, into the Thanksgiving season and that type of thing. What, how, how do we feel that is going? What are our numbers showing as far as students logging on on being engaged? Um, when will we have a sense of um, our students learning or are they treading water or um, unfortunately slipping behind um, in, in this sense? And I know you're doing a lot of work on this so we're gonna be talking about more in the future, but I can't let this opportunity go by right now when we're talking about 125 coming back to school, which is great. They're our most vulnerable, you know, I support it completely. But how, how are we feeling about our 53,000? 
And so then the superintendent responded. Thank you, Mr. O'Neill, for that question. Of course, you know, I want to bring all of our students back as soon as we possibly can, but of course we want it to be safe. And we also need clearance from the Boston Health Commission to be able to do that. Um, and, you know, the governor came out uh, Friday before last with some new measures and urging us all to open up schools um, and to get our kids back based on some of the science that he was looking at. I've got to say, you know, that we have um, had from the federal government a lot of shifting information from, you know, when to open, when not to open, what metric to use, what not to use. I talked to my um, fellow colleagues, urban superintendents across the nation, as you know, Mr. O'Neill, uh, from the Council of Great City Schools, and many of them are very frustrated, like me, that we haven't had clear guidance from the federal government and leadership um, on these matters. And we're not even using the same measure. We're not even using the same measures um, across from town to town and state to state, which makes it much more confusing. And these um, different precautions and different um, ways and protocols and health and safety protocols, we should have a common um, measure, a common protocol nationally and a national plan that helps school districts guide during this time. Um, as for the um, uh, way students are engaging, it, it's better than it was in the spring. I can tell you that we're having better engagement. Um, the thing that's troubling to me though, is that I still see little ones, pre-K through kinder, you know, um, struggling. They're still struggling. And I think also our, 11, our 10th, 11th and 12th graders still struggling. There's a little bit of a sweet spot with the kids who are, you know, grade two, I'd say to grade seven, who, you know, are better and are gauging on, on the screens and can do that um, and keep their attention and focus. But when you get to the older kids, um, especially our 11th and 12th graders, our, our preschool kids and our kinders, they are uh, really struggling to, to stay engaged. So, so Jill, the superintendent says um, something like, we may have a problem with some, some kids in early, early childhood um, learning. We may have a problem with um, some kids in grades 10 through 12 learning. Um, she, seems, she thinks there may be like a bit of a sweet spot apparently between grades two and seven. Um, Jill, how does she know? What is she collecting some data? I, I wonder. Like, it'd be great to see it if she is. Be good, it would be, yeah, it'd be good to know. And then she indicates that there may be some great learning loss happening. Um, I'm wondering, do, do you think she's planning on measuring any of the learning loss? The superintendent said many times um, that she doesn't believe in testing. Um, I'm wondering, do we have any data that tells us how our students are doing remotely? Is there any demand that our, you know, like our students should be? getting more support maybe. Maybe we need to be putting in tutoring. Maybe we need to be doing something different. Um, but the superintendent, um, I guess, has a feeling that kids, some kids may be doing well, some kids may not, and, and there's probably massive learning loss, but she doesn't know anymore she, than that. Well, she doesn't know, and she, she's not able to report it to the committee to whom she reports, which is so bizarre. I mean, it, it just made me wonder, does she even want kids to go back to school? You know, and she started to opine about the federal government I didn't understand that at all. I mean, she has spent 
the whole summer and early fall talking about how we were going to follow the science and it was going to come out of Marty Martinez's office. Marty, Marty's the head of health and human services for the city of Boston. She had him on speaking and suddenly she's looking to the federal government to be organized in some way to direct her around what to do right now. I mean, I, I just don't understand. Is her head just simply somewhere else? It's really concerning. It, it, her head doesn't seem to be on the well-being of the Boston students at this time, Jill. Yeah. Um, and now we heard another question from a school committee member. Um, uh, Ms. Rivera asked a question about staffing changes. So right. let's let's play that question from from Ms. Rivera. Um, I wondered if um, you could give an update on if there's any other like staffing changes or if we could um, get like an update on the organizational chart. I'm not sure if there's been some some changes um, that um, we need some updates on. And then, and then Jill, the superintendent responded with this. Yeah, so we are so happy to welcome Dr. Romero Johnson. I, I couldn't remember if I had mentioned that in the last meeting that we had hired her and introduced her. I've been introducing her around and giving her a big bienvenido. Um, just super excited to have her with the team. Um, and so I don't know if she's on in the room today, but I make sure if I haven't introduced her, I want to make sure to do that. We uh, did a press release and, and got that out to, um, I think last week. So very excited to have her. She comes from Madison. Um, she has a very strong background in bilingual uh, education and dual language programming, um, supporting immigrant families. Um, and she's just a bundle of joy too. So she's great to be around and a really great team member. Um, so she's gonna be putting together and working with the community um, and the OEL task force in order to put together a plan. And hopefully we'll have that by the end of the year because it's a goal of mine. It's also in the DESE MOU um, that we address EL learners. And obviously it is something that is a top priority for this organization. Um, as for other uh, changes in the org chart at this time, I don't have any announcements uh, for other changes within the org chart at this time. Jill, the reason, the reason this is important is, is twofold. Um, first, the superintendent makes note that she thinks she may have reported that the new head of English language learners was announced at the last school committee meeting. Um, I just want to be clear, the last school committee meeting was over a month ago. Um, this new head of English language learners was just hired, I believe, a week ago. So it's just, it is a little concerning that the superintendent believes she may have told the school committee about this leadership change, um, but clearly there's no way that she could have. Um, right. And also when asked if there's other changes that have occurred with her leadership team, um, the superintendent says, no, nothing to share at this time. I gotta be honest here, Jill, um, there have been changes. Um, we don't need to be over them right now, but clearly the superintendent doesn't wanna keep the school committee members um, informed about what's happening currently in the district. Yeah, very troubling. So moving on, half of the six hour meeting, half of it, half of the six hour meeting was the Boston Public Schools public community expressing their mistrust and frustration with school committee in, in effectively two minute sound bites. So let's move to the first public comment that we're gonna play, Ross. I'm here tonight on behalf of my clients, largely low-income students of color with disabilities. 
Earlier this afternoon, my colleagues at the Ed Law Project, Elizabeth Levitan and Michelle Scavangeli, along with attorney Ellen Seideman and I sent a letter to the district on behalf of 12 students with complex and significant needs who are unable to access remote learning. In this letter, we asked the district to develop an immediately actionable plan to offer all high need students in-person learning. The district's failure to provide these students with in-person learning constitutes a violation of the education clause in the Massachusetts Constitution and Article One of the Massachusetts Declaration of Rights. The EDLA Project's review of the COVID-19 learning plan submitted to DESE by districts across the Commonwealth found that 79% of white students in the Commonwealth have the opportunity for in-person learning as opposed to 41% of students of color. Boston, as the largest district in Massachusetts serving 85% students of color, has the chance to put a significant dent in this opportunity gap. Unfortunately, the four schools currently open for in-person learning disproportionately serve white students. The district is also violating federal law in two important ways. First, the district is failing to provide our clients with disabilities a free and appropriate public education. And second, the district is obligated to provide homeless students with an education, but many of our homeless clients do not have the technology or the space that would allow them to access remote learning, meaning that they too are unable to access their education. These failures are causing devastating harm to our clients. SH, who used to love to read and is now at a pre-K zero reading level. RT, who told his mother that he is too dumb for remote learning and has such intense anxiety headaches that he feels his brain is on fire. CP, who is living in a shelter whose mother began paying $100 of her $275 weekly income to send her child to a private program because although he used to love math, he is now writing numbers backwards and struggling even with basic math. We asked the district to develop a long overdue comprehensive plan to support our clients and all high need students in the district. So Roz, I have to say, I was sick to my stomach as I was listening to this. And then I looked up and I realized that the superintendent was just casually eating her dinner on camera. I don't even know how someone could eat during that testimony, particularly the person who's in charge of this disaster. I, I just, it really unnerved me, I have to say. Jill, this was incredibly concerning. We had an attorney on basically saying that they've, they're representing a very a, a clear subset of students. They are going to file a, a lawsuit. They're imploring the district to do better. They're talking about the dire circumstances of students in our school system suffering. We have many school community members leaning in to listen very clearly to this public yeah. comment. This is the right. third public comment of the meeting. This is about an hour into the meeting. And this is the time the superintendent decided that she wanted to pull out her dinner and eat her dinner while hearing this attorney say that she was going to sue the district and, and that there's massive troubling uh, issues going on with students with disabilities. So then there was a second public comment, um, again, on the same topic. Today, I am advocating for the families of students with high needs who have chosen in-person learning for their children because it's what the children require and it's best for their overall well-being. In addition, I'm advocating for the students who have been waiting too long to get their evaluations done in order to qualify for the services they're entitled to. We have students who are identified and have chosen in-person learning services and another group who is waiting to be identified in our district that I am here to remind everyone about because they seem to keep being forgotten. I continue to speak up for these issues because as Gandhi's quote is saying, silence becomes cowardice when occasion demands speaking out the whole truth and acting accordingly. We need our district to act accordingly. It is not enough to provide in-person learning to 193 students in our district that's made up of 54,000 students. 
Students with high needs that were previously identified in chosen in-person learning equated to less than 2,600. Yet thousands of these students continue to be unable to access remote learning and are not being offered any in-person learning options. As we know, even when our district is remote, every effort must be made to provide in-person learning to students with high needs. After eight months, I can't say that we have made every single effort. We know our students are not causing the positivity rates to increase. Every day that Boston Public Schools denies our children in-person learning, they are causing them irreparable harm and denying their entitlement to faith. And this needs to stop. We continue to talk about the highest of the highest need, and this is causing the division among our families, where people are starting to question so-called invisible disabilities, and it becomes a fight, almost like the Hunger Games, fighting for these limited resources. This is a right to an education. Our families should not be questioning whether someone looks like they have a disability or has a higher need or who has more of a need. These are rights and services that these children are entitled to and these, these families should not have to bicker and fight for. We need in-person services for at a minimum these 2,600 students. Thank you. So, so Jill, we, we have, um, this is uh, the, the chair of the special education um, advocacy group saying that we have 53,000 students in our, in our school system. We've had um, a little over a thousand high need students back uh, 20 days ago, and then we shut down. Um, now we have a little over hundred kids back in school, uh, but let's be real, that's not enough, right? There are so many kids in need. And, and she's saying that we're pitting families against one another to try to figure out who can go back and who can't go back. Um, there, there clearly is enough space, Jill, across our school system. We know we have buildings that have been built recently that have good ventilation in them. And in fact, we could put HEPA filters in every classroom. We could spread students out with high needs, uh, a few thousand kids across our school system. There's we no could excuse. Also, we could use other buildings that the city owns. I mean, the city owns uh, lots of other buildings in addition to there's the school empty buildings. Build, so, there's, yeah. Libraries are vacant. School, the, all of our community centers are empty. And, and the system refuses to think about ways to get our high need students back. There's no creativity here, zero. We have a massive issue first and foremost with our students with disabilities who this school system is absolutely failing. So there's another public comment and we're sharing these just because it's important to hear the tenor of the, in the content of the comments that were brought in front of school committee last night. Um, this is again from a parent uh, who talks about her son. Keeping these most vulnerable children out of school is a failure of leadership across the city. The mayor, the superintendent, the president of the Boston Teachers Union are failing our kids. They are failing them anew each day we keep them out of school. I have heard many times from city and district leadership that this is a complex and difficult problem. I have heard that getting high needs children back to school is an absolute priority. I have heard that leaders are heartbroken. But even though we know how to open school safely now, and we know that BPS has all it needs to do so, I have not heard what the leaders plan to do about this heartbreaking situation. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, our city's most vulnerable children are experiencing active harm every day that they are kept out of school. It is clear that our true priorities are not high needs children, as so many leaders tell us. Only 2% of the high in-person priority group are in school, and they just started on Monday after the superintendent had to act initially without cooperation from the teachers union. I've been part of a parent group who has recently met with Jessica Tang, Superintendent Casilius, representatives from the mayor's office, and city councilors. 
Each meeting has been more disheartening than the last. The BTU claims to want high needs kids in school, yet blocks them at every turn, including suing to keep them out of school. The city and district leadership are unable to persuade the BTU and also unwilling to push harder for fear of political consequences. Make no mistake, it is not COVID keeping high needs kids out of school. It's politics and it's shameful. And I ask that you please come together and do the right thing for these kids today. So, so Jill, we, we, there were so many of these comments from uh, parents of students with disabilities and they were wrenching. I, I think it's really important that we play some of these. We, we need to play a quote here from Ruby Reyes um, who um, summarizes what she believes the state of the school committee is um, in this current context. Let's play the quote from uh, Ms. Reyes. Thank you, my name is Ruby Reyes and I'm the director of the Boston Education Alliance. And I wanted to just say thank you for acknowledging the resignation of former chairperson Michael Lacanto for making racist comments regarding BPS families sharing testimony at the last school committee meeting. I can say for myself that he will not be missed. Um, what I experienced of his leadership was a consistent abruptness with families who at sometimes struggle to find their words of urgency and desperation. I remember watching him call a police officer on a mother when she questioned him about the McCormick and BCLA merger. I am disappointed that it took a level of overt racism and neoliberal embarrassment for him to resign and not for his terrible leadership. What was even more disappointing was reading the text exchanges about the incident in the Boston Globe. Beja was going to ask the decision to revisit the donation of the McCormick School's green space to the Boys and Girls Club be revisited because one of the three votes that passed it was Lakanto. However, now I ask this vote be revisited because the judgment of how to manage racism is questionable when it comes to the leadership of this body, most especially the other two votes that passed the decision, Alex Oliver Davila and Michael O'Neill, who supported and provided excuses to Lakanto. The elitism and racism that permeates BPS is evident in your decisions. What gets prioritized or not is consistently felt by families of color across the district. This requires strong leadership and visionary thinking, not a response of yikes, which is what Dr. Caselius texts Lakanto about his racist comments. So some other things um, happened during public comment that, were, that are worth mentioning. There was uh, some comments about the Horace Mann school community. Um, essentially the Horace Mann school community, their building was set to close um, and there is no solution for a new building for them. They did say, a number of people said, the superintendent came out and promised us everything would be fine. And now she's going back on her promise. We also heard from the Mather school community who felt blindsided by the decision to shift their SEI classroom to a bilingual classroom. This doesn't seem like a monumental change, but we heard from so many members of the Mather school community feeling completely disrespected by the decision of the superintendent who apparently just called the community and said, we made a unilateral decision for you that we're going to shift this program at, at um, the end of the day on a Friday. It, on a Friday, it, it, right? Teachers, teachers basically said, you know, I had ended my week. It's a really intense week teaching online, and I happened to pull up my email, and the superintendent is saying we're completely shifting, it, and it's never purportedly asked anyone in the community about it. Right. So let's let's play a quote here from a, a teacher at the Mather School um, who who talks about her her concern around this decision. At the start of the 2021 school year, with the COVID-19 pandemic in full swing, facing political instability, racial and social unrest escalating, amidst great economic challenges, 
I was both overwhelmed and hopeful. The choice to invite Dr. Bettina Love and Dr. Ibram Kendi to be our keynote speakers inspired me. My hope then was not in what was seen, but rather in what I considered to be a positive pivot in the district. I trusted that our leaders were going to embrace the opportunity that these trying times presented to really pursue policies that were equitable for all students. Dr. Love reminded us that we must dismantle policies and systems that are harmful. It is harmful when decisions are made that impact a group while denying the community its voice in the process. If this program was not deemed desirable by the Murphy School, why was the Mather not afforded the same respectful process to make that same determination? We celebrate the rich, vibrant, and diverse cultures and languages represented in our school family. The very characteristics that we celebrate also present complexities that we grapple with daily. Dr. Kendi said, what if we realize the best way to ensure an effective educational system is not by standardizing our curricula and tests, but by standardizing the opportunities available to all students. When we turn a blind eye to the greater needs of a community, are we not perpetuating the inequities that Dr. Kendi reminds us of? Lastly, Dr. Kendi asserts that the only way to undo racism is to consistently identify and describe it and then dismantle it. While the due language program may not be racist, its implementation is. So, so Jill, clearly uh, the superintendent, the, there's, a, there's a pattern here where the superintendent says that she'll be inclusive, but then she, asks, she acts autocratically. She disregards um, really maybe not even comprehending what the community wants. Uh, and people are not being fooled any longer. Uh, here's a series of other comments um, that we heard from members uh, of the school, uh, of our school community in Boston Public Schools about concern about various other things, really all around trust of the school system. Let's start with this comment from a parent um, about the actions and behavior of our school committee. I'm kind of at a loss for the apologies that started the meeting tonight. Um, when I read Ms. Rivera's quotes from the last meeting over text, I think he was making fun of Chinese names, hot mic, I almost laughed out loud, getting giddy here. I'm, I'm, it's in this time of Zoom bombings when we are trying to teach our children the importance of being mindful of what they put in the chat. What kind of example are these school committee members setting? They couldn't even show up for a meeting the day after the election. I went to work, my children logged into school, be accountable. I feel like the parents' testimony was not listened to. Our time is not respected. Ms. Sullivan read a statement from a BU professor at the beginning of the last meeting. Why? How come he didn't have to wait five or six hours to provide testimony like the rest of us? School committee members are texting and checking Twitter. These are our children's lives and futures. And then we have another comment. Today marks the 20th school day since our abrupt shift to remote uh, learning. In those 20 days, thousands of people sat in Boston restaurants and enjoyed their dinner and wine without a mask on, less than six feet apart, with the blessings of our mayor and the Boston Health Commissioner. In those 20 days, 10 out of the 13 bordering towns with Boston offered in-person learning to their public school students. In those 20 days, the vast majority of our private school students in Boston were in their classrooms. 
In those 20 days, there have been numerous communications from Governor Baker and the Commonwealth suggesting the schools to stay open. And they're getting their information, their scientific data from the Massachusetts, Massachusetts Health and Policy Commission. In those 20 days, several countries around the world have shut their businesses down to control the virus, yet they left their schools open. In those 20 days, you celebrated the return of 123 out of the 6,000 high priority students. In those 20 days, you have made us all wonder whether or not you know the definition of the words high and priority. And then we have another comment. People in Boston like me with the last name Murphy can rest assured that no one in public office and no members of the Boston School Committee are going to make fun of my name. In Boston, if your name is Murphy or Robinson or Sullivan or O'Neill, no one mocks you as an outsider. We have the privilege of being considered insiders here just because of our names. But if your last name is Ng or Peng or Wong or Chen, forget it. You may think you are welcome as a resident and taxpayer of our city to address the school committee as a valued member of the community. But for the Boston School Committee that is meeting here right now, the message is clear. Asians need not apply. This Boston School Committee will ridicule you on open mics. They will say they had to resist laughing at the racist tweets they were receiving. They will say that there are too many Asian students in our exam schools. This Boston Schools Committee does not respect Asian children and families, and the records and transcripts of their meetings prove it. The text messages that were sent secretly by school committee members to each other during last month's meeting are appalling. They are racist. You know, Ross, first of all, I had the same question that night at the last school committee meeting. Why did they read Kendi's comment outside of public comment? And ahead of lifelong residents, multi-generational residents, you know, families in Boston who have been here for a long time, families who are new, families who are grappling with this issue within their homes, I, it didn't make any sense to me that Kendi got priority and that his public comment was read ahead of a whole bunch of other parts of the meeting before we even got to public comment. It just seemed very, it seemed insulting actually. It also, it sounds like he got a contract out of it. it sounds like school committee hired him to do, and look, I, you know, I'm a fan of his work. I read his book. But I, I just, you know, what you said before, the Boston community is not fooled by pomp and circumstance. And um, it's demeaning the way that they're approaching their roles right now. Right, Jill, I mean, it, it's clear and clear at every um, public comment of school committee that the community is not being fooled any longer. Uh, and currently our families see restaurants open and they see schools closed. They see what's happening in communities around Boston that are reopening for their kids with highest needs. And they see Boston closed. They hear no plan, zero plan from the Boston team about how they're gonna do something differently. There's no data, there's no trust. They see what happened at last night's meeting. They question the process of who's in charge. Um, who's holding the superintendent accountable if the committee members themselves um, are not held accountable. Um, there's very little, if any, trust left in this group. And this will not simply end, Jill, with this pandemic. 
Um, if this behavior continues, I don't understand what, what's gonna happen next with this committee. Clearly it can't continue in this fashion um, or with the superintendent and this leadership team. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was three hours of people who hung in there to speak to school committee and to really just like vent and express their frustration and plead with school committee to steer the Boston Public School System back to the right direction, you know, and do the right thing for, for our kids and for our students. So once public comment ended, there ended, there was um, a single presentation. It came from the Office of Human Capital on annual, annual hiring. Um, you know, and we went back and did some research on this. Ross, what are your thoughts on this presentation? Yeah, so Jill, I went back to the uh, January 29th meeting, um, which was summarized in our second podcast for those listeners who want to go back and listen to that podcast again. Um, and the presentation last night was pretty much the same presentation that um, Mr. Taylor and team did um, almost a year ago. Um, they, they seem very excited um, to have done some exit interviews. Um, with all the employees of color who exited the system, but they, they didn't share anything about what they learned. Mm -hmm. uh, we continue, continue to see high um, rates of people of color turning over or leaving the school system, and we don't necessarily know why. Now, the, the team should be applauded for increasing racial diversity um, for, for staff members in, in, who are, who've been hired, um, which is great. Uh, now, they, um, uh, uh, they keep on talking about the Garrity order um, which is really a benchmark that was set uh, decades ago. Um, I believe they should set new, and we've thought, we talked about this a year ago, they should set new standards for themselves and say, we actually believe we should have this level of diversity in our teacher workforce, rather than relying upon a judge's order from, from um, about four decades ago. Well, right. And also that, I mean, I, we did go through this in school committee, so I won't belabor it, but it, the makeup of our student population no longer is the makeup that was when the Garrity order was issued. And so at the very least, we should reconsider the Garrity order based on the current population makeup, right? It, it, it is, right. And, and it is concerning every time we, we see a human capital presentation yeah. that they lead with a slide from the Garrity order, like that is their guiding focus. Yeah. Um, I would hope that they would have a, a little more um, uh, uh, comprehensive guided focus or, or more informed guided focus than that. Yeah. Um, now, uh, it, it, Mr. Taylor and team, um, left out exactly what they were asked to present a year ago. They mm -hmm. had uh, no data around hiring dates. So are, are they hiring early? Are they hiring late? Are they hiring the best candidates? We don't know because we don't know how many educators were hired in any month. Um, they also left out all evaluation data, right? So they noted, here's how many evaluate, here's how people were rated, but we have no idea what percentage of teachers were evaluated, what percentage of principals were evaluated um, and zero data on central office. Um, evaluations. So, you know, a, a year later, after Michael O'Neill and Hardin Coleman asked for the data, um, it had still not had been made public to the school committee. Um, and it was absent, again, from last night's presentation. I, I gotta say, Jill, um, we don't know if any central office person has been evaluated. Um, we don't know if anybody is being held accountable for what's happening with remote learning in our school system. We don't know if anybody is being held accountable for not getting our neediest students back to school in person. There is zero accountability. This is a superintendent's role. Um, and to ensure trust and accountability, you would expect 
that we would see um, how the superintendent is holding her team accountable for this critical work that is currently failing in our school system. Russ, it, it just feels like the situation is bordering on the ridiculous. I mean, parents have no power, principals have no power, students have no power, school committee seems to be unwilling to use their power, and, and I'm not sure where the superintendent's head is. It, this is not a great time for the school system to be leaderless. Jill, this is hard to watch. It, it, it's hard to be a parent of three kids in the school system, and it's harder for so many other families. It seems as if our leaders have given up or they've lost focus on what's important. True leaders would, re, would lead rather than create havoc, blame outside circumstances, or pit people against one another. Yeah, it's really a shame. And that, my friends, is what happened last night at school committee. We're sorry to report it, but that's what happened. The next meeting is December 2nd. Thank you for listening to last night at school committee. We hope that you enjoyed today's podcast. And if you did, please rate, review, like, and share it with your fellow friends, parents, and residents of Boston. We all have a stake in the future success of Boston students. Have a great day.